Welcome back, everyone. It's been a little bit of a break since my last episode, and I'm going to kind of get into why here in a little bit. I'm also going to talk about, in this episode, a band that I just came across completely by happenstance called Neverfall, and I also have a call-in from their vocalist and rhythm guitarist, Sean. And to conclude this podcast, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about metal history and what it was like in the beginnings of the metal scene in the Americas in the early 80s. This is life, according to a metal dad. Cue the music. So generally, I try to put out a podcast every other week or so, and, you know, it depends on what's going on in my personal life, so on and so forth. I'm not going to bore you with those details, but the month of March is usually a busy one for me. I've got one of my kids' birthdays, I've got my anniversary, and a host of other things in between. So I kind of put the show on the back burner just so I can have more time with my family and give them the time and attention that they deserve. Because ultimately, they're the ones that I'm here for when the day's done. And so I took my daughter to Disneyland, and it's her first time there. It's my first time there, to be honest. And we all went as a family, you know, my wife, my two girls, and I. And it was a good time. It was worth it to see the looks on their faces when they got to run into all the princesses and stuff like that. And, you know, I can't relate because I didn't have an experience like that when I was a kid. And, you know, at this point, I'm sure all of you guys have heard me talking about getting her these awesome Anthrax tickets. And now you're hearing about me taking her to Disneyland and stuff like that. And I know some people are going to be like, oh, you're fucking spoiling that kid or whatever the fuck. Well, first off, it's my fucking kid. I'll do what I want with her. And secondly, I didn't have a lot growing up. Thankfully, through a lot of hard work and a lot of good friends that I've made over the years, I'm able to be in a position to where I can give them all of these things that I wasn't able to have that we're capable of giving them now. And it's awesome to be able to do that. And, you know, the people that freaking hate on me for it, I pity you. I'm not mad. There's something going wrong with you to where... Unleashing all of that on me for something that I'm doing with my own family is happening. So I'm not going to go into that whole argument. So anyway, we're at Disneyland, and I personally, as a fucking parent, I like the way that it's set up. I mean, you've got all of the shops and shit on the outside, and I guess it could be a blessing and a curse because, you know, all of that shit's left behind you when you go into the park. But you gotta walk back through the shit when you leave. Personally, it was nice to have all of those stores the fuck away so that the kids weren't asking me every two seconds if they could have this fucking $350 fucking princess dress or whatever the fuck. <laughs> but yeah, other, other than that, you know, went on a couple rides. Most of what they were interested in was to see all of the princesses. I mean, they're in that phase to where you know, the Disney princesses are who they want to be in life. And, you know, they got to get a couple pictures with them and talk to them and stuff like that. And as far as they were concerned, they were real. And there's not very many places and there's not very many things I can do for them that would give them that same feeling that they're looking at somebody that they idolize because they can't really discern that there's a difference between the movie and real life at this point. And it's fucking cool if you think about it to be that young and not have been corrupted by what life is in reality. So we spent, you know, most of the day out there, got there right as they opened and left probably about, I don't know, 
early afternoon. I can't remember what time exactly and had them crash out for a little while. Carried my daughter for about 45 minutes that it took to get from the inside of the park to the truck. And she napped the entire time, which was awesome because that meant that she was good on the car ride the entire time back. Wasn't fucking screaming and all of that shit. And yeah, I mean, just, it's awesome to be able to do stuff like that. Like, I can't say enough how much I love being a parent. And as much of the hard times that we've had and the shit that we've gone through to get to this point, I can kind of sit back and enjoy the kids and their reactions and the experiences that they're getting out of this and the stories that they're going to be able to tell. That's where my focus is now. Because ultimately it's you know, my job to mentor them and teach them and prepare them for the world that lies ahead of them. But it doesn't have to be all tough. It doesn't have to be all strict and all of that all the time. They're only going to have one childhood. I don't want them to look back on it and say, you know, it would have been awesome if I would have been able to do this or do that as a kid instead of worrying about all this real-life bullshit that's going to be happening when I grow up before I'm even close. So I firmly believe in the work-hard, play-hard mentality, and that's how I approach them. You know, if they're good, if they're behaved well, if, you know, they do their chores, if they listen to us, meaning me and my wife, and, well, anybody that they should be showing respect to, they get rewarded for it, and I don't see the issue with that, and they certainly don't either. I mean, they earn every bit of what they get, and at this point, I'd been promising her a trip to first Disney World when I used to live on the East Coast for about three years, and then we moved out here to California, and it's still been almost another three years and we were finally able to make it happen, and they loved every minute of it. Also had my anniversary the very next week, and I've been married at this point seven years now, and I don't know how many of you are married, I don't know how many of you have a significant other or not, but cherish the time that you guys have together, because you don't realize how fast that time goes away and you look back and realize how much time was wasted where you and them could have been doing something but you decided to put it off or you and them could have been working towards bettering your future together and investing time into your future together. I'm not necessarily saying that's the case with me. All that I'm really saying in that is that the time will go by fast and make sure that you use it in a way to where you're not going to look back at that seven-year mark and realize that they're just a roommate at that point. If you take the time of day, even just a couple seconds in passing, to tell them that they're appreciated and to tell them that they mean a lot to you, you know, it's a significant investment in keeping your relationship strong and keeping it going over the years. I mean, that's the only reason I can think that she's put up with my ass all of this time. And those small gestures pay in dividends later on. And my wife and I, you know, we're simple people. We're not really super extravagant. So all she wanted to do was see the Beauty and the Beast movie. And at this point, I had went to Disneyland one weekend. The next week, I voluntarily went to go see a Disney movie in theaters with my adult wife. And I'm not complaining about it. I mean, it's a good movie. And as a kid, watching a lot of these Disney movies growing up, you know, it was kind of cool to see them in live action now for nostalgia's sake. But at that point, you know, I was kind of getting away from my whole tough metal persona that I like to carry around. And so I had to make up for it when all was said and done. And I've been riding my ass off. I've been busting my ass trying to record. I had my income tax money come in and promptly spent it on a new guitar and new electronics to help this whole process go by easier. 
And I know that the last episode I told you guys I was going to try to get more information on what I'm doing. So basically, I had this whole concept for an album. You know, I was laying awake one night when my wife gets up with the baby when she was probably, I don't know, two, three months old. She was really young. And she was still to the point where she was waking up every freaking two, three hours to feed on a bottle or whatever. And I just remember her coming back into the room and laying down. And the baby just started crying in the baby monitor as soon as her head hit the pillow. And she just kind of turns over and looks at me. And I mean, in the most pristine death metal growl, tells me how I need to get up with the baby. And I was just like, okay, you know, fucking complete and utter compliance. Cause uh, it shocked the shit out of me, but it got me to thinking if my wife can do that just one night out of sheer exhaustion, how cool would it be if I were to make an entire album about the shit that parents go through day to day and the ups and the downs that come with parenting, putting songs together that I'm yelling at my kids for not picking up their toys. But at the same time, you know, I'm teaching them these life lessons that they need to learn and that they need to start practicing now to be able to get a handle on being a grown up later on. And it started out just something that I would do for them. And I'd record the songs and, you know, me and my wife would have a laugh about it and the kids wouldn't know what the fuck was going on and they would just bang their heads to it. But at this point, I figured, why the fuck not? Why don't I just make it and put it out there for all of the metal parents that are listening to this podcast? Because I think that there's some sort of appreciation in the acknowledgement of what parents go through. And I don't see a lot of that that isn't in some super cliche manner. I'm not trying to fucking send you all Hallmark cards. It's basically about the common hardships and the common triumphs that we have as parents. So I've got two songs that I've got the guitar and the bass written for. Vocals are most of the way done for the first one. I haven't even started on the second one yet. And I'm still trying to find a solution for a drummer. I've downloaded some fucking drum machine software because that's all I've got right now. I can't just go out and drop the money on a fucking bajillion piece drum set with a double bass and all the cool little fucking shit that I need to pull this off. So until I can find somebody to fill in and track drums for me, I'm just going to fucking sample it all and hopefully come out with something good, at least good enough to the point that I can play it for a drummer and get somebody that'll come on board with me and put this shit out because I, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm having fun making it. And everyone that I've talked to about it has thought it was a really cool idea. So I figured, why the fuck not? So that's what I'm working on. I also just recently got picked up for a new position. I'm going to be a heavy metal album reviewer for Mixdown Magazine. And it's an online music publication. They do all sorts of different music reviews and articles and things like that about every major genre of music. And no, they didn't put me up to this. You know, it's just I'm excited about it because I have the backing of a publication now to put my work out there and to share some of these bands that I've been talking about and put them on a pedestal to where more people can look up to them and see their work. Because as I've expressed before, it's really important to me to get these new guys out there and to get them recognized and to help them along their way to keep the scene alive and to keep everything fresh in the industry. So I'm super excited about it. I'm going to be putting up transcripts of every single article that I end up writing for them, if not just directly linking to it. I'm still getting the whole process for how it works. I'm not sure if every article I write is going to get accepted or not or how the fuck that works, but bottom line is that I got it and hopefully it's a way to where I can get more content for all of you that are listening as well as kind of grow as a journalist and kind of work up into doing bigger and better things in the metal music industry. And speaking of which, as I might have mentioned before, I am a huge BC Rich guitar enthusiast. I love them to death. Everything about the brand. 
the whole feel, the whole styling. You know, I get shit on a lot for it, but I really don't give a fuck. And in one of the BC Rich groups, this dude ended up posting a music video that his band had done. And me being inquisitive, as I usually am, click on it and check it out. And it's this band called Neverfall. And the best description I can give you of their music is think of old school, two and a half, three minute song, straight to the point, fast, loud thrash. And that's it. It's just it's basically the thrash that you need, and at its roots, it really reminds me of the melodic influences of bands like Creator. Their vocalist kind of reminds me a little of Max Cavalera, his whole style and delivery, and it's just incredibly fun to listen to. I love the bands that can put stuff out, put a song that's under three minutes out, and just push the limits of how many notes they can fit into that two-and-a-half, three-minute segment. These guys didn't fail to impress. And so I ended up reaching out to Sean, kind of built up a rapport with him over the last, I don't know, two-and-a-half weeks or so, and he agreed to call in and kind of talk about who Neverfall is, some of his influences, just a candid conversation. I wasn't really trying to be all business with it because I just found out about these guys and I'm sure a lot of you haven't heard of them yet either. So I wanted to give him the opportunity to introduce himself as a person, as well as the band, what they stand for, what they hope to achieve in the future, and what brought them to this point now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have Sean from Neverfall on the line right now, ready to answer a couple questions about their new releases that I've talked about, as well as what they're planning on for the future, and just a candid look at what these guys are like and what their goals are, and so on and so forth. So, Sean, you there? Yes, sir. I'm here. The one and only. <laughs> <laughs> so, we had kind of chit-chatted earlier and stuff like that, but um, basically... We've been talking back and forth for a little while trying to make this interview happen. And yeah. you've been talking about your studio time and stuff like that. So how has that experience gone for you guys so far? Uh, it's, been, it's been going pretty good. Um, you know, we've just been, you know, going back and, you know, fixing little widgets and things because over the course of a year we've been, you know, trying to get this thing done and, you know, in between playing shows and life and all the other fun stuff that, it's one of those things that took us a little bit longer than we'd like, but, you know, now that we've got all the minor edits and, you know, major uh, things that we needed to re-record and all that kind of stuff, it's pretty much, you know, the, the finishing stages of the record is actually pretty much done. So towards the end of March or April, I think, we're going to be completely wrapping up mixing and mastering. So we're going to shoot to release the album, which is called uh, Blood and Honor, we're going to be releasing it. I think we're shooting for June or July, hopefully sooner. My fingers are crossed for sooner, because the sooner we get to release the thing, the sooner we get to play, the happier I will be. Oh, of course. But, yeah, but as, as you know, we're, we're, we're kind of shooting it for a later release just because we want to make sure we got all the new merch, all the new stuff, make sure everything is completely, humanly as possibly tight as it could be so that when we release it in you know june or july if that is the case everything just takes off and we're we're good to go to start playing all the time again gotcha yeah you're just getting all your ducks in the row so you've got new merch coming out as well for a while you know when our first ep came out back in 2013 we really only had like a shirt or two and now we you know we added a second shirt now we're like okay well, we only have two shirt designs we got to get on you know adding more because there's other bands that you know, we played with who have these, you know, racks and racks of, you know, merch, and it's just like, oh, we need more than that. Right. So, we're printing, you know, obviously like an album cover shirt, the new, the logo shirt, a couple other ones, and then I think there's one or two that I'm actually going to design uh, some of the artwork for. Um, we're obviously going to have like hats and, you know, patches and all that kind of stuff. So you're, you're, you're typical like thrash band kind of stuff, so we're going to, we're going to roll out some new merch in the next two months or so. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm, we're, we're looking to 
be able to, instead of it just being at local shows, we're going to try and figure out a way where we can send it out so if there's people all over the country and, kind of, and all that fun stuff. If they want it, then we can send it to them. That's the goal, at least. That's what I want. Gotcha. So you're just basically trying to build up inventory, and then you're looking at maybe making like an online store or something like that that you could ship the stuff through? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the goal. Um, it kind of sucks because we're all kind of early 20s broke guys, so it's, it's, it's one of those things that, like, as soon as we get money, it's like, all right, band fun, go. I so, completely understand. Yep, Shit's not yep. cheap, and it's not for the faint-hearted either. No, no, no. If, if your money doesn't go to your, uh, you know, your home stuff or, and all the bills, when you're when you're wanting to, you know, do this full time, you almost have to dump all your money into it. So for me, it's like, you know, stop buying guitars, stop doing all this other stuff. Buy your merch, get some new merch. Let's go. <laughs> and you know, it's funny you talk about the guitars, and I thought that it was kind of funny that the whole reason that I got turned on to you guys was the BC Rich Junkies page when you posted uh, yeah, yeah, your yeah. music video. You know, I've been trolling there for guitars and stuff like that. I didn't think I'd end up finding new bands, so that ended up working out incredibly nicely. I am a huge fan at this point. And I really yeah. like Under Fire. You know, I just had this melodic kind of creator-like feel to it, and it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, man. I, I appreciate it. That was Under Fire, as far as uh, songs on the New World album are concerned. That's one of my favorite ones to play, you know, live. It was, it was one of those songs. It's not a super long song. It's under three minutes, I think. But it, it's one of the ones that just, it just came out, and it was just, Raw to the point. There was there's there's not a whole lot of room for you know messing around or anything. It's just all cylinders open, and we just wanted to make something that was just straight as thrash as it could be. So, um, and yeah. then you ended up with uh, under fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when I shared that uh, video to my page, that's pretty much the description that I put. You know, it's just this pure, unadulterated thrash you know through and through and you don't see yeah. that you see thrash bands trying to be something else at this point and it's cool to see just that kind of old school mentality going into it oh yeah that was you know that, that that's been that's been a big thing for us when when we started out when we first started playing back in 2011 we were still kind of trying to figure out what it is we wanted to do and i've always kind of been a metal dude. I've always listened to Thrash. I've always listened to Slayer, Megadeth, Metallica, Death Angel, Testament, Overkill, Exodus, all those guys. I mean, I've got a, I've got a Vic Rattlehead tattoo on my forearm. So right. it's almost, it's almost part of me that I almost have to play Thrash now. But like, you know, back then we were, you know, we were one of those bands that like, you know, we, we show up, we were like one of the newer local bands in the scene. You know, we play Seek and Destroy and all that kind of stuff. And we wrote a couple songs and a couple of guys, a couple of the other bands were like, you guys are really good, you know, thrash band. And we're like, that's what we should go with. We should go with being a thrash band. You know, because we always like that, you know, fast, pounding, rip your head off, over the top thrash. And, you know, at the, at the time when we had really started, you know, playing out, we had just gotten done seeing, uh, uh, toilets come through with, uh, Death Angel and Anthrax and, uh, Testament. And we saw, we, we would, anytime they came near us, we would go see him. Yeah. And we ended up being pretty, pretty good friends with the guy in that angle. You know, every time they come through, um, we try to go see them. Rob was, Rob was a, he was my, uh, guitar teacher for a while. And I learned a lot from him. Hmm. You know, super cool guy. So, you know, he kind of rubbed off on that. And I was like, we gotta have the same intensity live. So. It was one of those things that, like, after a while, I was like, okay, if we want to do this, we got to be, you know, like you said, thrash through and through. So, you know, we kind of gravitated being specifically that. We didn't want we didn't want anything else in between. Right. So, yeah, I, I think it I think it came out pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. So that being said, you kind of talked about these bands that you liked and stuff like that. So when you were trying to find your own personal sound, I'm not going to have you speak for any of the rest of the guys in the band that aren't here or anything, but uh, who yeah. kind of influenced you the most? Are there any in particular, or did you just look at it as this whole genre? Oh, man. Uh, well, when it comes to influences, uh, 
mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty simple when it comes to the thrash influences. Like I've always, I've always had huge, huge respect and admiration for, you know, obviously Dave Mustaine, James Hetfield, um, Rob Cavastani from Death Angel, and uh, you know the guys from Slayer and Carrie. Those were kind of those have always been you know my my personal driving force. Right. Um, I always wanted to you know be able to play lead and stuff like Marty and um, like Rob and like Dave. And I was just like you know like it's so hard to you know almost replicate such a unique style that all those guys have. And for me, it was just, I always, I always like the heavy rhythm stuff. So that's kind of what I gravitate towards. But, you know, for me, the top three influences have always been, uh, obviously Death Angel, Megadeth, Metallica, those, those three have always been my influence. Yeah, it definitely shows in the music as well. You know, like I, like I was saying before, I can't say it enough. It's just that, that whole old school mentality and that feel is just, there and it's fucking awesome <laughs> awesome thank you thank you so much that's the goal that's the goal <laughs> so do you got a particular guitar that you've been gravitating towards here lately in the studio or I've seen that you have been kind of favoring the LTD was it the LTD Explorer you got here recently or was it an ESP? yeah yeah there's a couple you know like I have I kind of gravitate towards two guitar states um, obviously they're Explorers or the, uh, B-Series Beast. Um, the Explorer was one of those things that, like, I got so comfortable playing it because I, I like, I like all the way to it. Um, but as far as, you know, favorite guitars are, are concerned, it's, it's, for me, it's no question it's the B-Series Beast. Um, it, it has always, it's been my go-to shape. It's, there's, there's three that I have, well, I, I technically have four, but there's, you know, two or three that I've always, always bring with me usually to the show. Um, all of them are neck through. I like, I like quilted maple tops, but there's, there's two that I've, you know, pretty much recorded like the entire album with, and both of them are, uh, they're neck throughs, and I had, I had them retop. One of them's trans black, and one of them's trans red. Yeah, that trans red uh, one was the one that you had in the music video, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The red one, that's a uh, the all red one. That's a um, NT Lost Serial series, I think. We uh, I managed to find one of those a long time ago, and I begged and begged and begged my parents for it, and they were like, "No." Because <laughs> at the time that you know, I was, they were they weren't sure if I was going to stick with the guitar or not, and. Um, I ended up, obviously, I ended up staying with it. And then a couple, you know, fast forward to, you know, now, I think it was Christmas Eve. Uh, I just happened to see one on, at, you know, on guitar centers on their, on their youth site. And, uh, I immediately knew exactly what it was before I even read the description. I didn't, I didn't question anything. I just pressed buy now. Right. And, it. and, and ever since I got it, you know, aside from the other two, Necro one. Um, that's like the only. That's like the only other beast I'll use live. They just. They've. I've. I've had so many different beasts over the course of, you know, six years, and those three that I currently still have are the one. Are to me they're, and, and, until I get until I get signed with these years, until I'm you know, playing them exclusively, those are going to be. Pretty much, I mean, with the exception of, you know, a couple random guitars I play here and there, like, those are going to be the only guitars that go on stage with me anymore. <laughs> no, that's pretty awesome. They've yeah, they've withstood the, the test of time, so they, they, they have my respect. And a lot of people shit on that body style, and when I first got mine, I'd always wanted one just because of how they looked. You know, never yeah. mind, you know, how they play or anything like that. I always thought they were just the most badass shape ever and all oh, these yeah. people are like you know how do you play it with that long ass uh leg sticking out of the top and all that shit and i found it was probably the most comfortable out of all of the ones that i have i mean even my strat it's yeah. way more comfortable yeah. to sit or stand and play it yeah that's that's that was the thing of me picking up the beast because you know i 
know, I walked in the guitar center when I very first started playing guitar. I think I was 15. Um, I picked it up because, you know, it it, 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 I was like, that looks cool. That looks like the deadliest guitar you can play on stage. (laughs) A friend of mine who, his name's Chris, he plays for Lecherous Nocturne. Um, he was, he's exclusively like a BC Rich player. He plays the JRB. And, uh, he, you know, he put it in my hand. He goes, he's like, try it all, bro. So I pick it up and I'm like, I, I don't know how to play anything at the time. So I just, I just held it and I was like, this, that's it. That's it. Cause like, you know, I could play it like almost like a classical guitar. Like, you know, like how you would use it like a B. Right. And then, and then you could sit with like an explorer too. And I was like, okay, this is like the best of both worlds. Yeah. So from that point on, I was like, sold. And they're not, they're not neck heavy. Even, even with the giant beast headstock, they still don't neck that. Or at least, or at least mine will. Yeah, and, and I, mine have been solid as well. Yeah, I haven't had any neck dive issues. The War Beast was a whole different story, but oh. the Beast has been a solid player. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what do you guys got planned for the future? You guys got, you know, any tour in the works? Are you just booking, you know, shows on the East Coast for now, or yeah, you still playing yeah, it out? Mainly, yeah, when it comes to shows right now, Kind of like I said before, you know, we're we're a bunch of early twenty year old guys that, you know, we're broke, so we already kind of sink all our money into whatever we can afford at this point. But you know, the biggest thing is, you know, we we, we kind of are trying to book shows more for work like Georgia, some you know, Florida, Tennessee, North Carolina, where we are, you know, maybe a little bit further north. But the biggest thing for us, you know, we could book all these shows all day long. Is the the hard part is the transportation. Right. You know, rather than taking, you know, three or four cars, like, it would be just so much easier to, you know, take, like, a van and just pack that and, you know, pack a trailer, all that stuff, and just do, like, a couple, you know, a week, two, three weeks, you know, on the road. You know, um, just stay at the KOA or whatever? Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we ideally, we want to be out touring. That's, that's the goal. Whether or not we can physically do it without the transportation, that's the tough part. Gotcha. So, so you guys are just still establishing that at this point then. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And we, you know, our, our bass player, Mike, he's, it's, it's funny because he's, he's like, he's, we both, we all want to score so bad that he's actually figured all this fun stuff out. You know, distances between venues where we could stop, where we could sleep, where we could fuel up, shower, all that kind of stuff, the time, the time between cities, all that kind of stuff, when we could have like a day off, and it's, you know, we haven't even, we haven't even done it yet, but we're in the planning stages, so when it is time, we're not, you know, we're not scrambling to figure out what it is we're supposed to do, like we, you know, we get the van, let's go, we already know what we're doing. Right, and then you could just... Worry about hitting the road and meeting the next day. The the less stuff you have to worry about like that on the road, the better. Yeah, I can only imagine. Even local shows, you know, freaking going there in three, four cars and all that shit. It's got to be a fucking nightmare, logistically. Oh, yeah. And even even when we play, even when we play around town, like, a big thing, a big thing with local bands and a lot of other bands play with, um, set up and tear down time. You know, it's, it's something that a lot of people overlook and, you know, we try to be like, okay, we have 15 minutes, that means seven of it, we have to be done and off stage. Right. And we're, cause, cause if you start eating in the other band's set time or sound check time, that's super not good. Yeah, so you're fucking when, them over at that point. Exactly. So when we show up, you know, we try to, we try to pretty much like, have our stuff almost ready to go before we even hit the stage. All we have to do is just roll on, turn on, hit a, hit a couple notes, make sure we're in tune, all that fun stuff. And like, all right, go. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, all things aside and stuff like that, it's obvious that you guys are at a point where you're looking at doing this a lot more seriously and where you're pretty much hitting the border of hobby and career. But what led up to this point? Like, how did you guys meet? You know, what made you decide to go in the direction of a band? And, you know, how did you end up here today? Well, you know, we, 
I met Drew through a friend of ours. And, uh, you know, at the time, I, you know, some of the other bands that I was, you know, playing and jamming with were, they were kind of happy just playing shows every, you know, every blue moon and not really doing it super seriously. And, you know, I'll be totally honest, when I was 12 or 13, I was like, like I want to be a rock star. I want to do. I don't want. I don't work a normal job. I don't want to do anything else. I want to be on stage playing all the time. And uh, for me, uh, the biggest thing was always trying to find people that wanted to do it as much as I could. Right. You know, because I just I wanted to, I wanted to play. So when I met Drew, you know, at first we were both kind of like, yeah, right, kind of just like a hobby thing. Then a couple months later, we found you know Mike. Our bass player. And when we found Mike, it was like, okay, now we got three, now we got, you know, almost the whole band. We don't have a vocalist and we don't have a drummer. And then we happened to find Ethan and our brand, and, uh, our vocalist Brandon. And, uh, it worked for a little while and then Brandon ended up, uh, he had, you know, some personal issues and he ended up not being able to do vocals. And that kind of left us without any kind of vocal talent whatsoever. So we were like, all right, well, Who's doing the singing? We all kind of look at each other. I'm like, well, I mean, I can do it. So <laughs> I kind of got stuck doing that. And, uh, it, it just kind of stuck being the four piece deal. But, um, initially, the four of us kind of were like, all right, do we want to do this just, you know, for a little while, just for fun? Do we want to do this for real? And, you know, like I said earlier with the whole, you know, Death Angel Testament and Anthrax thing, when we saw them play, you know, I think we saw them at the Fillmore in North Carolina. When we saw them play, it kind of, I guess it kind of simultaneously sparked something in all four of us. You know, because I already, I already wanted to be out doing that permanently. Like, the, the hobby side of it, that that no longer existed in my mind. For the other guys, I'm not sure if it's, it was exactly the same, but for me, right after we left that show, it was like, okay, that's what we got to do. Yeah, now, that's what solidified it, huh? Yeah, and, and it, was, it was seeing them and seeing that much intensity all night. It was like, okay, that's what we got to be doing. That's what we need to be doing. Because we, you know, up until that point, um, we played a lot of shows. We played a, you know, a pretty fair amount of shows. And, uh, people were like, you guys are, you know, you guys, for, for being as young, we were all under 21 at the time. And, uh, everyone was like, you guys are so tight. You guys, you know, you guys could be doing this all the time. We're like, could we? <laughs> Question mark. So, you know, after we saw them, it was like, we, we need to be doing that. We gotta do that all the time. So, I think it was, a week or so later, we started playing and, you know, what turned into, you know, practice for like an hour or two, it, it snowballed and suddenly became, okay, we're going to practice for four or five, six, six hours straight. And we got to that point where it was like, we could play our set almost blindfolded. We could play it on each other's instruments almost. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, to me, that was, that was kind of the, the turning point of like, okay, let's actually do this like for real seriously. So, and, and, you know, when everyone's, when everyone's on the same page and everyone's got that same level of motivation, it's like, you, you almost can, you can almost hear and feel it as, as a band. Like when you're playing together and you guys, you're just, you're, if you're all hungry for it, you'll, your music will reflect it. Like you guys want it. You really want it. So. You know, that's, that's kind of what we're striving for. We really want to be doing that all the time. Just playing all the time, touring, you know, breaking all the rules and resurrecting thrash as best as we humanly possibly can. <laughs> here, here. And, you know, so that's awesome that you guys, you have that one moment where you're like, this is what I want to do. A lot of people don't have that. A lot of people, it's like a gradual thing and eventually they make a decision. And another thing yeah. is a lot of people don't realize the amount of work that it takes to keep even a small band going. Not to just detract from you guys or anything like that, but you guys are putting all yeah. of this work in and you're not even touring yet. 
you know, and a lot of people, yeah. they'll see you and they'll see that you're playing locally and they might think, oh, this is just a bunch of kids that, you know, they might get together, drink beers and play songs every once in a while. They don't, a lot of people don't see the amount of work that it takes just to be able to get to a point where, you know, you're set in and out and you could tell your bandmates when they're sounding fucked up and shit like that, you know? Yeah. And to me, you know, when you're, uh, when you're memorizing your set and you're, you know, ironing out all these details, that's, you know, that's one thing that we're, uh, well, at least I'm, I'm guilty of. Whenever we see other bands, I almost dissect their entire set. You know, time between songs. How much time are you talking? How much time are you doing this? Because it's like, I almost, I would never fall to be so, you know, refined like a well-tuned machine and just go. Like, I almost want us not to think about what it is that we're doing when we play live. Yeah, just muscle memory at that point. It needs to be a second nature. Yeah, because if you, once you lose that intensity, once you stop, if you, if you're the only one in that band that has that intensity, it's so incredibly noticeable on stage. And that's, and for me, that's a huge, 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 huge pet peeve. Because it's like, I know, I've seen other bands that are, you know, super tight and all these good things, and, and it's only one dude on in the band or, or, or one chick, and it's just like, but what are the other guys doing? What are you doing? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're like, help them, damn it. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it too. And yeah, you can definitely tell who's putting the work in and who isn't. Yeah. And at this point, I just wanted to congratulate you. I've seen... Thanks. The work that you guys have put in, I even though I just came across you guys recently, I can see you doing great things in the future just based off of the little bit that has come to light here recently. And with that, thank you. you know, it's I've got to end, and I just want to thank you once again for coming here, calling in, and giving us a little peek into what Never Falls like. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I well, I and the whole rest of the band who unfortunately is not present right now, we all thank you so much. And that's what I'm here for, man. Like, bands like you are the next generation of musicians. You know, one day, Metallica, Slayer, Testament, Cannibal Corpse, they're not going to be playing music anymore. And it's guys like you and women like you that are going to keep this thing going. So I try to pull out as many artists and as many different styles of metal and put them on a pedestal. And hopefully this helps you guys out and in turn helps the whole metal scene out in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. But all right, man, thanks again. And I'll talk to you later. Right on, man. I can't say thank you enough. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Later, man. Later, dude. And once again, that was Sean from Neverfall. Their album, Blood and Honor, should be coming out sometime between June and July. They haven't come up with a hard date for it yet. Their single, Under Fire, is on YouTube. It's also on their Facebook page. You can find them on Facebook as well.
So last time on your metal history lesson, we talked about the new wave of British heavy metal and all of the circumstances that led up to its creation and the things that helped sustain it during its rise to success. At the same time, the metal scene in the United States was vastly different. Disco was in every club and had pretty much taken over. This led to metal fans and hard rock fans at all, being backed into a corner, so to speak. Their music wasn't available, and what they could find was from Europe, and in this time there was no internet to simply go on and look up the bands that you hear about. What they were depending on was for people coming from Europe to be able to give them news, to be able to tape trade, and to spread the word. They ended up forming societal cliques, so to speak, and they would hold trivia contests and they would trade music and reviews, go over copies of Kerrang! magazine, anything that they could do to keep the need for heavy music going. At this point in time, being a metalhead took commitment. They had to put forth the research to be able to find these heavy acts. Even the people in the punk scene had enough of an influence to where they weren't reading all of the English magazines. They were satisfied with what they had. It didn't take long for American bands to capitalize on the influence that the new wave of British heavy metal had. So much so that Twisted Sister ended up signing to a European record deal. What that did was allow for all of the music publications being put out in England and the rest of Europe to introduce American bands to America, which is kind of genius if you think about it, because these guys weren't making it where they were from. They ended up going to a place where this music was thriving, taking an immense risk to go international with their bands, and they ended up being introduced back into their home country with great reception from the populace here. At the same time, the flashy Hollywood style of West Coast heavy metal brought forth by bands like Van Halen was starting to rise. The sheer persona of Eddie Van Halen and his incredibly powerful performances day in and day out set the standard high for heavy metal guitarists of day and age and also greatly fit the flashy Hollywood lifestyle. Guitarists like Randy Rhodes and George Lynch were both getting their starts in their respective bands, Quiet Riot and Exciter, and also an unlikely bridge between American and European heavy metal scenes came from Ozzy Osbourne, who had moved to Los Angeles with Black Sabbath in the late 70s. After he left Sabbath, Ozzy came back from what was sure to be his own demise in order to make Blizzard of Oz. At this point, he was completely broke after a slew of bad business arrangements. It was at this point where he met Sharon, who was the daughter of Black Sabbath's manager, Don Arden, and she bought out Ozzy's contract, and they started from scratch together. In this new approach, Ozzy took a more California style, so to speak, of flashy, melodic rock compared to the power chords and gloominess of Black Sabbath and took them in a whole new direction. And this direction helped to create the Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman albums in 1980. In the same year, metal started to take hold in the Americas, compounded by ACDC's Back in Black album, released in November of 1980, followed shortly after the death of their lead singer, Bon Scott. And what they did with this powerful release was proof that metal had more support than people gave credit. And the populace in America was sick and tired of disco. So much so that ACDC was able to sell 5 million copies of their re-release of Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap and 3 million copies of For Those About to Rock, We Salute You. But both were eclipsed by the 20 million copies that Back in Black went on to sell in America over the next two decades. This renewing breath 
into heavy metal led to a man named Ron Quintana to write a letter to Kerrang! magazine in order to find more Americans that were into this music and to organize and to trade demos because at this point, writing into an English paper was the only way to make this happen. Quintana started to be showered with 10 to 20 letters a day as a result of Kerrang! magazine printing his plea for help. The outpour was so great, in fact, that he ended up evolving into a full-on fanzine known as Metal Mania. Originally was to be called Metallica, but a friend of Quintana's, a beginning drummer by the name of Lars Ulrich, had felt the name was better suited for his band. Shortly thereafter, in August of 1981, Los Angeles native Brian Slagle launched the fanzine New Heavy Metal Review, and it covered local bands to the LA area as well as the new wave of British heavy metal music that had come across his desk. There wasn't much to work with in the L.A. area at this time, but what his record store did was attract vast amounts of metalheads in the region, and it created a regular community where information freely flowed and led to the discovery of some local bands such as Motley Crue. Contrary to the sunshine style of Van Halen, Motley Crue tended to deal in the occult using blood, smoke, and pyrotechnics in their shows. Taken from influences like Alice Cooper and Kiss, their presence was so much that they began to give even British bands a run for their money. And in order for all of you to fully grasp the feeling that was being put forth by Motley Crue breaking into the main stage, I'm going to play for you Shout at the Devil, because to me it is arguably their most iconic song, and it gives a great glimpse into what the hard rock and metal scene was like when these glam bands started out, but still had that rough edge about them. So here it is.
Now, at this time period, metal was on a rise in the United States, and no single person embodied the heavy metal movement in this country more so than Ozzy Osbourne. Following the success of his first two solo albums that quickly went gold, two incidents launched Ozzy into infamy. The first one being, in a meeting with label execs and people he was trying to impress, he bit the head off of a live dove. Then, in January of 82, a fan threw a live bat on stage, and unbeknownst to Ozzy, he bit the head off of it, thinking that it was a stage prop or something to that effect. He became the rock and roll boogeyman that parents loved to hate overnight. Young teenagers saw wisdom in his voice and adored the songwriting and the romantic guitar solos of Randy Rhodes. But sadly, shortly after his initial success, Randy Rhodes passed away in an airplane accident. This dealt a drastic blow to Ozzy and the new sense of self-pride that he had cultivated in the years since Black Sabbath. In most regards, heavy metal had become a do-it-yourself art form. Independent labels and record stores and fanzines were popping up left and right at an unprecedented rate. And this entire do-it-yourself attitude led the new heavy metal review editor Brian Slagle to set about producing his first LP on his brand new Metal Blade record label entitled Metal Massacre. And what this would become is a carefully selected and arranged compilation album of all of the up-and-coming metal acts to date. The first Metal Massacre album featured bands like Rat, Malice, and Motley Crue, but none so much would come to have the amount of success and the amount of influence over the heavy metal genre as who would come next. The last few minutes of the first Metal Massacre album, Brian had promised to a young metal enthusiast from Denmark by the name of Lars Ulrich. Up to this point, Lars had merely been a metal enthusiast, that had jammed every once in a while with his friend James Hetfield. But now, having been promised the last final minutes of the Metal Massacre release, James and Lars had a reason to start the band that would become Metallica, and it made it easier for them to recruit members for the release. In 1982, they recruited Lloyd Grant to play lead guitar on Hit the Lights. At that point, James couldn't really play the lead, and Lloyd was a friend of Lars's, who was a pretty good guitar player at the time, so naturally they picked him up. They finished the recording by the skin of their teeth. They were the last band to get their track to Slagle, and according to him... It was recorded two nights before they mastered the final record. Several thousand copies of the first Metal Massacre were pressed using money that he had saved from working jobs and that he had borrowed from family. And very soon, Metal Massacre was a staple in the heavy metal community. And Metallica now had a track on a record, but they had yet to play a show. Lloyd Grant pretty much immediately bailed. And it led to many lineup changes in Metallica's early days. They ended up finding gigs for local bands such as Striper. And their lineup solidified around Lars, James, their bassist Ron McGovney, and their lead guitarist Dave Mustaine. Meanwhile, Brian Slagle was seeing a different type of success. His entire first pressing of 4,500 records sold out in only a week. This led to multiple signings of artists on this first release, such as Ingwe Malmsteen's band Steeler. In subsequent pressings of Metal Massacre, there came a rise of more local talent. Even a more experienced Metallica slipped in a newer version of Hit the Lights recorded with Mustaine. Brian Slagle understood the tastes of the community at this point. But what he didn't understand was the sheer appetite that this community had for new heavy music. The rampant success of the Metal Massacre series led Metallica to record their first demo, No Life to Leather, and eventually led them to leaving Los Angeles in search of greener pastures in the Bay Area. At their first show, 
the amount of response that Metallica got from the crowd immediately signaled that this was where they needed to be. The final deciding factor in the move up north was their desire to replace Ron McGovney with Cliff Burton on bass. At this point, they were given an ultimatum, and that was that Cliff would stay in the Bay Area where he is from, or he wouldn't join the band. And needless to say, Dave, Lars, and James all packed up their beat-up amps, their cassette collections, and their personal effects, and moved up north to seek fame and fortune with Burton. The rest, as all of you I'm sure would know, is history. And that's it for this chapter of Metal History. Next time, I'm going to be getting into a little bit more about the effect of metal in the United States, as well as what networks like MTV did by giving artists a new medium for their music in music videos.
So that's all I really have for you guys this time. I've got a couple ideas for the future. Speaking of which, I'm thinking about doing a letters from the inbox section. If that's something that you guys would actually write into, give me stories about your metal adventures with your kids or new bands or shit I should be doing in general. My email should be up on my page. It's metaldadofficial at gmail.com. And if you guys have any general questions or anything like that, you can email me anytime. That's the whole purpose behind that account. Next time, I'm also going to go into a little more metal history. And I should, fingers crossed, finally have a little demo clip from my first song that I'm working on. So until next time.